just past 7 o'clock and back in the saddle. Time to do it. It's Ira on Sports on the True Oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo and Ira. Got to watch a lot of golf over this past couple of days. And really, between this week and last week, golf is hitting it out of the park, being really the only mass sport um, that we can catch on the weekends. And two super exciting tournaments. And this last week was just amazing. And then they, because of the rain delay, it was pushed more into prime time. I mean, I, I, I didn't to think go. they were going to finish. I had to go to Father's Day. You know, I was sitting at Father's Day. My dad at least let me watch. We're sitting outside at Cafe Chardonnay. I'll give a <laughs> plug to that. But we're sitting outside because our advertiser on the station. But I was sitting outside with my iPad watching it and then able to finish in like 9 o'clock at night. And it was just what a great tournament. Exciting. And just, uh, you know, to come on the heels of last week's tournament at the Colonial. Two great tournaments back to back. Close. Exciting. And then we got the Belmont too. So we actually had two yeah. really good live sports for this weekend. We did indeed. And it was, uh, it was a lot of fun uh, all around. Um, um, great show on tap tonight. We're going to have Michael Bamberger join us first around 720. Tell us about Michael. Um, he's a longtime writer for Sports Illustrated, golf writer. He wrote a book called The Second Life of Tiger Woods that really goes over the Masters win and the Tour Champions win and, and every details. Tiger's this great, you know, the last two years. And then let's talk about um, John Shea, who's going to come on at uh, 740. John Shea wrote a book with Willie Mays, and so it's more of an autobiography mm-hmm. uh, with it. And it was a book in terms of all covering Willie Mays' life. And John Shea spent had like he spent a hundred hours interviewing uh, Willie and writing it with him. A very interesting book, and it's a great story. I mean, Willie Mays is. Uh, one of the greatest baseball players, if not the greatest player of all time. So it's great to have John on and also Michael. We will be uh, on that in just a couple of minutes here on Iron on Sports, so stick around. All right, let's talk about the golf. Yesterday, uh, I was the Heritage Classic at Hilton Head. I, I got to tell you, I... I'm pretty much over fans now. I These last two tournaments, getting able, able to see these courses more up front, having less mashed potatoes, just in, enjoying the golf and nature for what it is. I'm going to be okay if they never bring fans back to golf, <laughs> realistically. Well, as someone who likes to go to watch golf and watch, likes to be there, I'm, I'll miss it. But on television, I'm getting struck by the fact that, yeah, I don't think you need them at all. Yeah. I, I think because they cut. And when you have so many players that are in the mix, when you're watching it on television, they go from – it's all always quiet. They really don't hear the, the until unless they hit the great shot, you might hear some noise. But a lot of the holes and a lot of the greens we see at the Honda, there's fans not around those mm-hmm. greens, even at the Masters. So when they're hitting the shot, you don't even hear the fans because there's no one around those greens. But I thought it was a beautiful course, the Harborside Town Golf Links at Hilton Head uh, with the water and the lighthouse and everything and the boats. It looked great. Just a tremendous tournament. It's neat to also highlight these tournaments that we don't usually watch because the fields are so weak. Now every week we're having these top fields go to these tournaments. I think it's great. It was kind of like watching a Chamber of Commerce commercial for for Hilton Head. All the aerial views. I've never been there before, but now I've got to go check this place out. It just looks absolutely beautiful. And that golf course and the many golf courses around there are just uh, the icing on the cake, I guess. Um, I got to tell you, I found myself rooting for Daniel Berger again. And I don't know, maybe because it's the local kid or that he's kind of fresh on our minds, but... I was hoping that he would make a run there. You thought that Brooks Kepko was going to pull this down, but uh, we did see uh, Webb Simpson take uh, take this uh, tournament down. Yeah, well, that was <laughs> Webb Simpson is an interesting, very interesting. I mean, he was a 2012 U.S. Open winner, and then in 2000 they stopped the. He had the, one of those belly putters, and when they stopped using the belly putters, there was an interesting story on Golf Channel about that. Mm-hmm. And he just couldn't putt at all; just lost his putting, was terrible. But he's now putting better than he ever had. You know, 2016, 2017, but he came back and won 2000. He didn't win anything. Then comes back and wins the 2018 players, and now he's ranked number. He's fifth in the world and ranked number one now in the FedEx standings. It, it's very impressive. I don't know. Did you notice how weird his swing is? It, it, it's unconventional to, to say the least. 
but it works for him. And yet, the, since he's figured out the putting stroke, he's one of the best uh, short game players in the in the game. So uh, let's talk about how how this all went down. Well, in the fir- just to go over the, the first round was interesting in terms of the fact that Rory McIlroy started calling out some of the European players. There's a few players like Adam Scott that haven't come over and played these, mm-hmm. and I just I didn't know why Rory was calling them out. Like they don't want to come, they don't want to go through protocol, they don't want to go be quarantined. I don't think they have a duty to come yeah. play at these tournaments. I was really surprised that Rory called these golfers out saying they should be here. I mean, these fields are great. Tiger Woods hasn't been. I, I, I just didn't get that. And then unfortunately, Nick Watney, one of the players, was the first COVID uh, positive case that they had and he had to pull out of the tournament but mm-hmm. it shows though he pulled out this is why golf is different than these other sports because they're self-isolating that Nick Wadney test positive he goes home and goes into quarantine and doesn't affect the rest of the tournament well we're nervous for the team sports that could be a problem no I agree and that, yeah I mean it's not like they're all even staying in a hotel together they get houses they've, they've got their own their own space when it comes to golf you're listening to Iron Sports on the True Oldies channel we'll have Michael Bamberger join us in just about 15 minutes or so so how did, how did Webb Simpson pull this off because this was a, a back and fourth leaderboard um, starting on uh, starting on Thursday. Webb Web was playing well, but there was really ne- nobody set themselves apart up until the last couple of couple of holes. Yeah, I mean, at one point on Sunday, 21 golfers, 21, were between 15 and 17 under. Crazy. And it was just, that was what was, I mean, Webb was in the lead the whole time in terms of, he was on, on the second round, but then he, the third, he went, he he came and he was behind uh, Terrell Hatton and, and Abraham Answer. But, uh, you know, one thing, Rory just didn't fire this whole tournament. I mean, he wasn't in the mix. He finished at 41st, 11th under, and you're just waiting for Rory's game to come back. It was great to see this weekend. I mean, the key thing was Brooks. You know, that's a headline I see on ESPN right now. Brooks Kepka's back. So it's nice to see him have that great tournament. But it just didn't. Rory just did not have that. But And Justin Thomas played well. So a lot of the big names played well. But on Sunday, what was interesting was that uh, was when Fratelli, uh, Dylan Fratelli, uh, you know, birdied the last two holes. He shot a 62. He's 17 under. And it was right before they went to a three-hour rain delay. And they interviewed him. He goes... I know I'm two strokes up. I know I'm in first place, but I have no chance to win. Everyone's going to pass me. I'm going home and pack. You know, it's like I, I'm not going to be in a playoff. Like, yeah. there's no way. Like, here's a guy you're you're leading on Sunday by two strokes, and he's like, I have no shot. And then with like a minute, Justin Thomas ties him and goes 17 under, and that and that's when everything. And then we had, I mean, it was like it was the cast of characters, everybody birding and birding. Mm-hmm. I mean, this course seems so easy now. This is for the pros, but Joaquin Neiman of Chile was at 19 under at one point in lead, and then even Sergio Garcia got to 19 and under. And it was like this point where it was Simpson and Answer and Terrell Hatton, and they were all and Berger, and then Berger on seven. Has that chip in to go to twenty mm-hmm. under, and then you're like, what that I liked, was impressive. What I liked is that Burger. I mean, Simpson got a birdie on sixteen and a birdie on seventeen. So he actually, as you're waiting for, everyone was jockeying for position, and then Burger, and then Simpson had those two birdies at the end. I felt bad for Answer because Answer, I think, was 18 greens in regulation for the for the round, which had a perfect round. But from 10 to 14, he was missing birdie putts by like an inch. Like yeah. it was like everyone was a tap and par. He makes two of those, he's going to win the tournament. So I felt, I've had Abraham Answer. I felt bad for him. He's from Mexico, and uh, but it was neat to see some of these other golfers. And one other thing about this that was interesting is, do you see the emotion? I mean, there was point Terrell Hatton hit a shot one time and just like fell to his knees. He was so mad. Like people said, well, when their fans aren't there, it's going to be hard to get emotional. These players were really into it. Mm. Yeah, I, yeah, I don't think that they care about the fans. At, at, you know, like they don't need that. And especially, like you said, it's a detractor. A lot of these guys don't usually have. 2,000 people around us. If you find yourself on a Sunday afternoon grouped up with Tiger Woods, it's going to be a lot different atmosphere than it was on Saturday, um, you know, when you were just playing your, your normal round. Do you think that the PGA Tour doesn't? I mean, they constantly talk about they want to make these courses harder. They want they want a more difficult golf. I don't see a, a problem 
with high scoring golf like this with constant uh, changes and, and it always brings up some smaller name guys in, into the mix it seems like when you have these courses that, that score easier. Well this was just weird this year. I mean this tournament before I think last year 66 uh, uh, last year 38 people shot in the first round in the 60s and this year went from 38 to 66 so mm-hmm. was it almost almost nearly doubled in terms of, of the amount of people so it somehow played easier. It was less win um, but the greens are small. It's the second I think the second smallest greens besides the uh, Pebble Beach and mm-hmm. on the tour. It was just a tournament where they were shooting. But yeah, it was great to see the birdies after birdies. Now, this is a tournament we don't really, you know, they don't really like that. You're right. They rather have it, you know, for the U.S. Open, it's, you know, played apart. They want to Black they, every weekend. They want to play to par. But uh, it was, uh, so I think, but it's still, look, you can have exciting golf no matter what. And, and I don't think Tiger likes this. I mean, Tiger Woods likes the, you know, playing. He doesn't want to have the, that's why he's probably not in this tournament. But he likes to have the closer to par uh, tournaments. No, you're absolutely right. Yeah, Tiger doesn't want that where someone's going to shoot nine under every day he wants um just he wants his skills to be able to take over and that usually does happen on the harder courses uh, anything else um with yesterday's uh, heritage well i do like to say that daniel berger when he, he finished with 20 simpson was at 22 answer 21 but berger now to finish in third place in this tournament when it last week i mean you're looking this could be this you know this is really a burger his all the talent in the world had all his injuries the last couple of years now it looks like he's really set to to make a nice run and, and it's someone who came in with we saw him at the honda when he went to uh, patty harrington this is someone Man. who might you know be this great another great up-and-coming west palm beach golfer uh, yeah i'm not going to be surprised at all and like you said it seems like he's turned the corner and we're going to be seeing his name at the top of leaderboards quite often what's coming up for golf travelers championship in connecticut usually this is now remember this is father's day weekend this used to be the u.s open and i sometimes you know i love the fact that it's father's day and they mentioned but i think that jim nance goes crazy on the whole fathers and it mentions that usually at the u.s open it almost takes away but it, usually the travelers is right after the u.s open and, and very few golfers go to it. This year, I think it's nine of the top ten will be there. Um, there's going to be uh, no Tiger is going to be there, but everyone else and, and no Fowler, no Ricky Fowler. Besides that, you're going to Kepka, Rory, Bryson DeChambeau, uh, Phil Mickelson's going to be back, Dustin Johnson, Justin Thomas, um, Bubba Watson. You know, we always talk about Bubba Watson. He always has a few tournaments where he just wins, like Riviera yeah. and the Masters. And this is another one where he's won three times. So, so if you're betting in a betting pool, Bubba Watson probably has something you know to do there. But it's going to be another great tournament where you have all these all the players are playing. There's a there's a saying in horse racing, horses for courses, and that means if you know if the horse if he, this horse wins at this track, you bet him whenever he's running <laughs> at that track. Kind of the same thing with Bubba Watson. Uh, let's shift gears to horse racing though. How nice was it to see Brittany Yurton all over the place um, on TV? She's a good friend of uh, Iron Sports. Here we had her on last week. She's just phenomenal. Yeah, she's phenomenal, and she's the star. She's really of TVG Network and of NBC. I mean, she's taken over that. She was doing everything. She's probably doing the role of she's one of the few people that had NBC that was actually on the in at, at the Belmont. Uh, and interviewing the people before, interviewing after. I'm glad we got her on the show. I mean, she's going to be someone who's going to be, you know, she is a star now in horse racing, but mm-hmm. I'm glad she's been on the show and she's going to come on again. So it's great. So let's talk about the race. I, I'm always torn on these situations where it's like a huge favorite is in the field. And that's what we had um, in Tis the Law. And Tis the Law did not disappoint. It was tough tough to make money on this. Um, if, you know, if you were just trying to bet them straight up. I. Yeah, I mean... First of all, I've been to, I was trying to count how many Belmonts I've been to. I think I've been to 20. So I, it really, when it started, I'm like, I felt, I felt like sad. Like I, this is the first thing, this is the first event that I have seen on TV that I've missed. Like that. I'm like, I did, I was there. Like I've been there for Justify, American Pharaoh. But in 97, you know, there was a run where 97, 98, 99 between Silver Charm, Real Quiet and Charismatic, then War Emblem, Funny Side, Smarty Jones, you know, all these were going for the Triple Crown. So it's so exciting to be there. And I love like, so my whole 
strategy was always to go to the paddock, take great pictures of them getting dressed and everything. And then I'd be sprinting up to where I'm like right near the finish line where my seats were. And I'd be totally exhausted, sweaty, because like 100 degrees and then watch these races. And I've seen some of the most classic races of all time right there. And then it's just weird to look at the Belmont and see how enormous the track was and have no fans there at all. But it was, uh, you know, it was one of those races where I... I just I was following tis the law the entire race, seeing mm-hmm. what the positioning. You don't want in a race like this to get sort of boxed out, but it just seemed like tis the law who we saw from the Florida Derby was running around. It was just in his position the whole race in terms of where he wanted to be. I mean, Tappa to win uh, got that early was it with four left. Everyone said Tappa the win's going to jump out fast. Four left was going to be out fast, but it was like tis the law was just sitting there right uh, probably like fourth, third or fourth almost that entire race when he went around the turn. Then you're like it's. I felt it was like tis the law to win. I mean, unless tis the law didn't fire it, but Tisla fired, and then the you know the uh, Manny uh, the, the the jockey was looking back at uh, you know he was able to turn around. He was, mm-hmm. I think that Tisla could have won uh, by who knows? I mean, two miles. I mean, whatever. Tisla was by far the class of the field. Yeah, and they didn't have to push him. Yeah, that, that's what you mean. Like, yeah, he definitely could have won by whatever uh, he chose to win by. Anything else you want to touch on with the Belmont before we get to Michael Bamberger? Yeah, well, Doctor Post. I mean, that's what Brittany Hurton said. You know, keep an eye on Doctor Post mm-hmm. and the local connections in terms of the Florida Panther owning and. Uh, you know, ran a good race, and then I'm seeing a lot of the Kentucky Derby's odds. Doctor Post finished second, but a lot of people think that Doctor Post is going to, you know, run well now in the Kentucky Derby. Remember, there's two months now before the Kentucky Derby. They're even talking about um, Tisla running at the Traverse, so running another race. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that you Which run a Triple Crown, yeah. that you run another race. Now, in the old days, the, there was sometimes some horses did run before the Belmont another race. It was like in the 1920s and 30s. But so you're going to see that. But so um, you know, I looked in terms of what horses could run, I and mean, everyone's saying, "Oh my God, Tisla is unbeatable." But there were a bunch of horses that have a chance, I think, like just Honor AP and Authentic, who were in the Santa Anita Derby, that will be able to run. Uh, maybe Charlatan can run in this race, who was one of the favorite, who was hurt and not be able to, to run. So there's other horses that could challenge Tisdala. But the most important thing was Tisdala was, I think, from since uh, you know from the hundred, since 1882 was uh, the first horse to win the Belmont. 18, that's 1982. That's 1882, <laughs> a New York horse, and and to win the Belmont, it's just a shocking because they have so many stables there. Um, and Funny Side had that chance to win and. And, and, and lost, uh, you know, 10 years or 15 years ago in 2003. But uh, so it was a big win for New York and New York racing. Let's get to uh, Michael Bamberger here on Iron Sports. This is Iron Sports. We're talking to Michael Bamberger, the author of The Second Life of Tiger Woods. Uh, thanks a lot for coming on the show, Michael. I'm delighted to do it. Thanks for your interest in the book. <laughs> well, it was a great. Do you, broad- do you broadcast just in- Are you. Do you broadcast in the West Palm Beach area? Yes, we're from uh, West Palm Beach to Port St. Lucie. So, I mean, West Palm Beach from Port St. Lucie down to Boca, so we can hear it from there. So Tiger listens regularly. (laughs) I don't know if Tiger listens regularly. But the one aspect of the book that I just loved when you talked about was you you really described it, and I don't think it's covered as much, how this area, the Palm Beach County, Martin County, Jupiter Island, has become the mecca of golf. I mean, not since the NASCAR drivers all lived in Charlotte, has like the entire sport have, I mean, the inter, you know, international golfers that, that play across the world, but they all live in the small little segment of Florida, and you really cover that well in the book. The only thing that might be uh, comparable to it is that uh, that small town in the Dominican where all the shortstops used to be from. Uh, but yes, there's a uh, there's a major congregation of uh, of players, uh, those who have made it on Jupiter Island, and those who are trying to make it in Palm Beach Gardens. 
<laughs> so we're talking again to Michael Van Berger, the author of The Second Life of Tiger Woods. Um, Michael, this book really, you really looked, took at one point the 2017 um, uh, when he went Tiger Woods in terms of when he was stopped on Memorial Day weekend. And that was sort of saying that's when the second life started. And that was the turnaround. And, and so talk a little about what happened in 2017 and Memorial Day weekend and how you felt that was the catalyst for this rebirth where he won the tour championships and then he won the Masters. Right. And, and it's interesting in this in this moment where police work is getting so much attention and a lot of it very negative attention for totally understandable reasons. But if you look at Tiger Woods' uh, arrest, uh, and as you say, I write about it in detail in the uh, in the book in uh, on Memorial Day uh, morning of, of 2017, it's a textbook example of doing everything the right way and really has nothing to do with Tiger Woods being an, a, a famous person. And it's everything to do with the arresting officers uh just treating a very difficult situation with a lot of humanity. And uh, and in so doing, I think they actually, the, these Jupiter police uh, officers, actually paved the way for Tiger Woods to be open to the idea that uh, it was time for his life uh, to have a fresh start. Uh, what happened was uh, at about 2 in the morning on Memorial Day in uh, 2017, uh, he was found uh, asleep at uh, the side of the road. He had uh, two flat tires, and uh, the car was uh, completely inoperable. And uh, and he was comatose, and anyone who has seen the arrest tape uh, 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 knows what I'm talking about. And um, and later it was uh, revealed that he had uh, uh, five uh, different drugs in his system, uh, all, all evidently by, uh, by prescription. But the drugs in combination with each other were definitely potentially lethal, just in terms of the drugs themselves, but also because of uh, operating a, a vehicle uh, uh, under under their influence, uh, presenting tremendous danger to Tiger and to anybody else on the road. Uh, and you know, I'm reading tea leaves here. Uh, I don't want anyone to think that oh, you know, Tiger opened up to this guy and this is exactly what happened because Tiger. He's a very private person and most definitely did not open up to me. So, but, uh, you know, I did as much reporting as I could to try to understand what it's like to be Tiger Woods. And uh, I think he's a very proud person, a very smart person. And I think when he, when he woke up in the jail, uh, on, on that morning, walked out of there, I can only imagine it was with a sense of this is not the person I want to be. This is not the father or the professional athlete I want to be. And, uh, and it was a catalyst, I think, for, a remarkable uh, change in him that led not two years later to winning the 2019 Masters. Yeah, when we and you describe in the book, and we're here at the Honda Classic, and it's interesting that in March 2014, that is when Tiger's back problems became known to everybody when he had to withdraw from the Honda. I was actually at the hole when he withdrew it. He actually walked over. My mom was standing next to his family when it happened. Um, and then it, you really mentioned how in the 2018, that's when people started noticing him. Of course, I walked all you know all the rounds for him on that plus the the uh, the pro am, but he he looked better. It, it's that's when the back started to really feel like you're that he's going to make that comeback i i agree the uh uh i think in that uh he shot a really low round in, in friday on friday to make the cut maybe on the number 
and uh, he might have been first off on that Saturday at, at Honda. Uh, and then I think he played 10, 11, 12, 13 all in pars, and then he walked off after 14. Is that correct? Correct, yes. And that's far, is that far away from the clubhouse, as I recall? No, he walked. There's a back entrance to it, so he literally walked out. There was a road on the back, so he, when he went there, I, it was this, the quick story is my mother wanted, she's like, I can't walk anymore. It's too tiring. It's too hot. And she wanted to go. And I said, no, we're just going to walk back to the clubhouse. And then when, when Tiger walked over, it looked like he was talking to my mom. So I was like, and on TV, when the ESPN, when they keep replaying it, you actually see Tiger talking, and he's standing next to um, his children at the time uh, when he went and, and then walked off the back and then got into a van at that point. It's interesting, uh, because I, I was always curious to know how it was that uh, the daughter was suddenly uh, uh, making this uh, this walk in, but I didn't realize it was, uh, it was such a short walk from there. So that was 2014. Then, yes, as you say, four years later, in March of 2018, that's when I became a believer, because, because so the quality of the shots were spectacular. The quality of the irons were spectacular. Uh, and much more significantly, his head just seemed to be in a different place. Uh, he showed a level of, uh, of interest and awareness. And, uh, you know, golf really reveals a lot about a person. You can tell the mood of the person. You can tell their, their sometimes, not always, but you can often tell the mood of the person and, and their overall uh, satisfaction with life or, or that day. And uh, I, don't, I can't tell you precisely why, but I know I have the most positive impression of Tiger from that Honda tournament in 2018. And then the uh, the following week, he, uh, he played the Tampa event on very short notice and finished one shot out of the playoff. If Tiger Woods can play a hard course that he doesn't know well and finish one shot out of the playoff, you know that he can win a PGA Tour event. Yes, and then, I mean, I just loved... So we've had Mark Canazaro down for the New York Post and John Feinstein, other authors and other people talking about the Masters, and I think everyone brings their interesting perspective. And you really... You really detailed exactly what happened at that Masters. And I love when you talk about on Sunday and how Molinari, who had beaten Tiger twice in the past uh, two years in tournaments, you know, suddenly, you know, Tiger recognized here I'm, I'm behind. I'm two strokes behind. But he felt that he was, you know, he was actually putting this pressure on Molinari. And that's where Molinari and Finau and Kepka and everybody hits in the water on the 12th hole. Well, Tiger, no question, by hanging around was putting pressure on Molinari. But going to 12, he still had a two-shot lead. So it wasn't its pressure. Of course, it's Tiger Woods. He's already got four coats. You're trying to win your first. And it's Tiger Woods who's in your group. You can see everything he does. But I would say the, the real pressure for Molinari was the fact that he had won the 2018 British Open, defending British Open champion. And now he's got a chance. He's already a great scout from Italian history. But if he can win this U.S. – if he win this Masters, uh, become the first uh, – Italian uh, uh, to win the Masters on top of being the reigning British Open champion. Then he's in the club for life. I think that's really uh, the momentum, the momentousness of that realization, I think, is probably uh, even more significant than the fact that, uh, that it was Tiger breathing down his neck, but I'm not discounting that. Uh, Tiger played a very smart back nine. It was not, people think it was, you know, this perfect uh, back nine like Jack's 30. In 1986, that allowed him to win the uh, his uh, his sixth green jacket over over Norman and others. Uh, it wasn't like that. Uh, uh, and uh, Molinari made uh, made a double bogey on 12, and then he made. You know, but he was still in great position to win this tournament until he stood on the 15th tee and hit a squirrely shot there, and a bad second shot, bad third shot, made another double bogey there, and then it was sort of uh, over for for Molinari. So. Uh, 
uh, yes, at some point, uh, that whole 2019 ma- uh, Masters, everyone wants to think of it as a Tiger Woods story and a Tiger Woods show, and it is, but it's way more than that because it's a lot about the greatness of the tournament and how hard it is to win the first Masters. It's a lot harder to win a first Masters than to win a second one or a third one. As guys have shown, you know, guys like Langer and Alaphabal uh, and others have, have won multiple Masters without being uh, without winning loads and loads of other tournaments. You had a great stat in the book that I hadn't seen, whereas Tiger on uh, Saturday, so the third round, whenever he's won uh, his majors, he's always beat his playing partner, where he figures that if I'm going to be in the hunt for the tournament, I might as well beat my play. Not only have a score to shoot, but, and you talked about how Ian Poulter was his playing partner on Saturday. He was mad that Ian decided to wear lilac pants because that was the color the Tiger was going to wear that day, and, and you're not supposed to wear lilac when Tiger's wearing it, and, it, and he also gave him more incentive to beat him. Well, that, that was a little tongue-in-cheek, you know, that, that not the poster part. Uh, but I did have a, you know, half a joke in the, uh, in the book. It's like, did Ian Poulter not get the message that <laughs> Tiger had already reserved lilac for that day? Of course, there's no rule like that remotely like that. Ian Poulter was the last guy to pay any attention to a rule like that, even if there were a rule like that, which there's not. Um, but, yeah, I, uh, this is theory. Uh, Tiger might deny it. Tiger could deny it, and it still could be true. I think he likes to go out there and bury whoever he's playing with on Saturday because uh, he's got that match play mentality. Uh, he's, he's the best match play golfer, you know, in the history of match play golf, along with maybe Hagen and Bobby Jones, but you probably have to put Tiger, uh, Tiger first. And, uh, yeah, once, once he's buried that guy, that, that, the Saturday playing partner's got to be playing pretty well to just be playing with Tiger in contention uh, uh, for a major. And uh, if you can humiliate that guy on Saturday, that's one less guy to uh, to worry about. I think there are people who would disagree with that theory, but uh, that's, that, that's my theory. And uh, and there's a lot of uh, evidence that suggests that it's true. So you're ta- and also throughout the book, you talk about the two major changes Tigers really had in terms of. You know, he started with uh, Coach Butch Harmon, Hank Haney, and Sean Foley, but now he doesn't have a swing coach. And you talked in the book how golfers didn't usually have swing coaches, and he sort of brought in the whole age of swing coaches, and everyone has that. So now he really doesn't have that swing coach, and he is his coach. And you worked with, you said, Rob McNamara. McNamara. But also the change of caddy from Steve Williams to Joe LaCava, and how LaCava has just the perfect person for this new Tiger and and working with him. Right. Uh... I think what, what you're hitting on there is a very significant thing because uh, what, those of us of a certain age who have seen Tiger's career unfold have seen him going from someone who's very much under the wing and the uh, and, and the and the cap almost literally of his uh, of his father and, and, and Butch Harmon to uh, to figuring things out for himself and. Uh, now the golfers of Tom Watson's era before, pretty much every generation before uh, Greg Norman and, and Nick Faldo, they were of the mind of, yeah, I have the guy who helps me. He looks at my grip, he looks at my stance, but I'm my own man out there. But that really has uh, that has changed over the years. And for Tiger to uh, to reach a point in his career where uh, he owns his own swing and he owns his own fixes, he owns his own mistakes. Is a uh, is a very significant uh, development. If you've ever read the uh, the Hank Caney book, The Big Miss, written with uh, Jaime Diaz, um, uh, Hank talks a lot, and of course, from Hank's perspective, of how uh, dependent uh, a Tiger is on uh, on, on Haney. 
Uh, well, that's not true in 2019 uh, when, when Tiger won the Masters. He's, he's figuring out uh, what's working and what's not working on his own. And I think that's a uh, that's another level of uh, of maturity uh, that makes Tiger a better golfer and really a more interesting, evolved, complete person. And then you mentioned in the book, and, and you go over in terms of his relationship, he really didn't have a relationship with a lot of the players before. And then you talked about even at the PGA Championship after in 2018 when Brooks wanted, he was waiting for Brooks Kepka. And how and now, and it came almost full circle at this the past year's uh, President's Cup when he is, you know, the leader of the team and involved with the golfers. And it's just totally from being this isolated person to being one of the team now. And you mentioned how Lakava is good on that because Lakava is all about team, team, team. But the point is, you're just saying Tiger is really Switch, you know, there's been a big switch from being the loner in terms of being now the leader of a team. Right, and um, I think Lukava has been significant in that. But I think the most significant thing about it has been uh, the passing of the years. You know, when guys like Justin Thomas, well, consider this: Rory Tiger Woods has now won 15 majors, uh, professional majors. Rory McIlroy, who's a veteran who's 30 years old, has only been in one of them. That's astonishing. That's what a dinosaur this Tiger Woods is. In other words, he won in 2019. The previous major was in 2008. So over the course of those 11 years, a new generation came in, and they knew nothing about the Tiger stare and this Tiger standoffishness and the Tiger separation. They just knew that they grew up on this icon named Tiger Woods, and he was still out there playing really good golf, but not golf that was like, very good, just really good. Uh, so John Rahm and Rory McIlroy and Patrick Reed and Justin Thomas and Jordan Spieth and Brooks Kepka and Bryson DeChambeau uh, and on and on we could go. Uh, they weren't intimidated. They were ready to be buddies with this guy. And enough had changed that Tiger was ready to be buddies with them. Whereas, you know, the VJ saying Ernie Ellsville Mickelson generation Tiger saw no advantage to having those guys as his quote buddies. He didn't need or want buddies. Why would he start to beat them? <laughs> so we've been talking to Michael Bamberger, the second life of Tiger Woods. And I guess the question is now, I mean, it's the number one question is like, is Tiger going to make that, you know, have the 18 and tie and tie Jack uh, with those titles? And you know, if you followed him closely his entire career and, you know, it's impossible to predict. But what, what are you thinking in terms of his ability to, to stay healthy and to compete and to win? Well, you know, if he stays healthy, um, he stays strong, he can compete. If he competes, he can win. Uh, can he win another three majors? Everything I predict about Tiger Woods is wrong. <laughs> I would say it would be almost impossible. But as Jack Nicholas says himself, never bet against this Tiger Woods because he will always prove you wrong, as thoroughbreds do. There's, there's, you've never been a golfer like him, not even Nicholas. Uh, not Hogan, not Lee Trevino, not not Mickey Wright, not anybody, uh, not Annika. Uh, so bet against them at, uh, at at your at your own risk. But I think it I think it's asking too, too much to. If he could if he could win one more major, it would be an astonishing accomplishment. But the fact is, truly, he doesn't need to do anything. Uh, just by by winning that 2019 Masters, uh, he did complete the circle of returning to the game and he accomplished something that uh, I'm sure was very dear to him which is he has said it I can say it because he has said it uh, giving his kids a chance uh, to see him play uh, golf the uh, 
uh, at the top of this, uh, at the top of this game. Not like it was in 2000, but still good enough to beat everybody else and take that coat and bring that coat home. We've been talking to Michael Bamberger. He's the author of The Second Life at Tiger Woods. The books just came out. Um, it's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. It's a great book. I mean, I've read all the Tiger Books book, and I think this is, I mean, Michael, you've covered it for Sports Illustrated and for now Golf Magazine. Uh, just a very interesting take in terms of the second comeback of, or the, the first, come, I guess, the comeback of Tiger Woods. So, Michael, thanks so much for coming on Iron Sports. Ira, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Okay, thanks a lot, Michael. I appreciate it. Um, All right, um, also, I went to the University of Pennsylvania. I graduated seven years after you did, but I, I thought that was interesting that you were in Philly. And Very I, cool. Yes. Are you a full-time radio man now? No, I'm a, realist, I'm a lawyer and a real estate developer, and I have a show on Monday nights from, uh, for an hour. But I, I, it's just thing. I, I go to tons of sports. I've been to – I mean, when you were talking about Honda and Riviera, I mean, I was there. Like, I went – I walked last year – um, I went to like six, seven tournaments. So I travel to, I go to all the sporting events and stuff like that besides golf. And, uh, so I've just been traveling for, I mean, you know, 50 NBA final games, 50 world series games, dozen Super Bowls, everything like that. But, um, it's interesting. I mean, I, I didn't have time to go into this about the Genesis when he was at the Genesis. That's the first time when he was, you know, he was coming back. That was in 2018. And I, I, I got there early. It's like six in the morning when it's tee off time. And I remember you have to walk up that hill in Riviera and I'm like totally exhausted. And I come right up and he was like two feet from me. And I was like exhausted. He just come right out. I'm like, oh my God, Tiger Woods is like right in front of me. And he played with Mark Wahlberg that day, which is interesting that he was, uh, and I think Wahlberg sort of loosened him up and playing in that tournament. So it was, I just, you know, when it was neat when you were talking about these tournaments that I went to and uh, you picked up so many interesting tidbits. What, uh, what kind of law do you practice? I'm a real estate attorney, so I'm in New York, based in New York City. So I I, I live down here in West Palm, and then I go up to New York for when I have to. But I represent uh, high net worth individuals in in buying and selling properties, and also commercial tenants in their leasing. So I'm really busy now negotiating people buying out leases, leaving New York, all that stuff. So it's a lot of work. Yeah, very good, Ira. Thanks for your interest. Uh, Really appreciate it. Thank you. We'd love to have you on maybe later in the summer to talk about, you know, maybe the Masters coming up. But it was great. I'm so glad we could get you on this time. I appreciate it. Thank you, Ira. You take care. Thank you. Great stuff there from Michael Bamberger here on Ira on Sports. All right, Ira, let's change gears. Um, NBA seems to be getting closer and closer to coming back, and I think everyone's pretty much ignoring Kyrie Irving at this point. <laughs> <laughs> well, the one player announced we had, they have till Wednesday to announce if they're going to play or, or opt out, but it looks like they have the Dallas Burtons, who is a player probably people don't know, but he plays for the Washington Wizards. And, and again, I think he's a type of player that wouldn't play in this. He, his team is out of the Washington, mm-hmm. and they need to win a number of games to get even in the playoffs. He has two arthroscopic knee surgeries and he's going to be a free agent. So why risk doing that? I think you're going to see a number of players not play on Wednesday. Now, especially with the COVID spikes in the Orlando area, they're nervous about that. I mean, the NBA released this entire thing. and We have more time. I'd love to go over all these things about the amenities they're offering. I mean, I feel like we're going on a cruise with uh, they're going to have NBA 2K, TVs, gamings, pools, trails, barbers, manicurists, pedicurists. I mean, it sounds like you know, just whatever, and, the, and you know what the how they and the, and each team is going to be at different hotels. Like the yacht club is going to have the Blazers, Kings, Pelicans, Spurs, Sons of Wizards, and the Grand Des- uh, Destination Resort will have the Bucks and Lakers. So if you're the better seed, you get the nicer resort. I I find that funny because when I worked for the University of Pennsylvania, we played in the NCAA tournament and we stayed at like 
at a hotel, like the worst motel in the world for the NCAA tournament. And when they played North Carolina in the first round and they were at like the Grand Hyatt, whatever. <laughs> I thought that was great. But, um, but so, I mean, it's going to be, and the question is the bubble, you know, they're going to be in this bubble and the players and are they, you know, is, will Disney employees who have to go to the bubble, stay in the bubble? Will they be there? Mm-hmm. Will they be able to, um, I still, I look, I think it's like 75% they're going to play. I don't think it's a hundred percent. LeBron James is supposedly has all his, the Lakers are practicing in some secret location that they're getting ready for this because this is LeBron's chance to win his his fourth title. But uh, um, so, I, look, we're going to know by Wednesday. This Wednesday is a big date in terms of what players opt in and opt out. Let's uh, talk about baseball because, again, I, I just have no idea where these guys are. I feel like we're getting somewhere, but it's not fast enough. I just don't think that the players or owners want to play. I mean, there's right now where uh, um, Rob Manford flew to, to Phoenix and met with Tony Clark, who's the uh, players person, mm-hmm. the players representative, and they they came to a, a situation where it's now the owners offer 60 games and the players want to play 70. Remember, it's it's on parade. The owners are saying we're losing eight hundred thousand dollars a game, so every time we play a game, we lose it. So we don't want to play want to play less games. So the question is, are the players going to get thirty seven percent of their money or forty three percent of their money? Um, but but I think the players, like they were going to vote on it last night. They didn't. They, they waited. I don't think the players are going to accept this. Um, it just seems like this is, I don't think there's going to be baseball at this point. Um, they were talking about things like the universal, universal DH with the National League having yeah. a DH, which I always thought is a great idea. Extra innings with the man on second. But, but also they haven't even, like the NBA and NHL have talked about in the bubble, the COVID, all those things. This is just, they're not even there talking yeah. about those things. And again, we're now in almost July. When are they going to start this? August, whatever. And then I just think it's... It's the point where I don't think the players want to play and I don't think the owners want to set this up and lose money. I do feel like that's exactly where we are. And it just it's, it's a stalemate at this point. And there's really not going to be any, you know, winner or loser at this except for us, the fans, unfortunately. Um, all right. Let's get into uh, John Shea here on Iron Sports. This is Iron Sports. We're talking to John Shea author of 24 and it's a book john you wrote with willie mays so it's it's a it's an autobiography sort of would you would you say it's an autobiography yeah his memoirs uh i mean it could be a lot of things it could be a biography a children's book an inspirational book Uh, uh, he mentioned that when we first started talking about it he'd like to see it in classrooms but really it's for a baseball book a sports book uh, a book on history so it's, it kind of runs the gamut, but it's it, it, maybe we start with uh, his memoirs. What I liked about this book and how you presented it, and it's difficult because you're doing the writing, but you wanted to have his words, and it was so it was sort of a not from his perspective. But you all, you you wrote and wrote about it, and whenever he had something to add, it's like on every couple pages you would put in bold print his comments or his recollections, which I, I liked in that. And I also like the fact you just didn't go chronological order. You covered so many different topics, but you didn't feel like when you know, someone has a 24-year career, you weren't going to go year one, year two, year three. So I just liked how you jumped around and just covered the big issues with him and didn't try to do this just, you, I mean, to do a 24-year history of him and, and his post-baseball would have been like volume after volumes. Sure. No, thank you. Uh, you know, straight biographies or sometimes autobiographies are a chronology, and I, I was born in Westfield, Alabama. I played with Birmingham Black Barons. I got signed by the Giants. I broke in in 51. I made the catch in 54. I went to the Mets in 73, and then uh, on and on and on. But you know what? This this is... I didn't want to recount games and stats and play-by-play. We all know that. And sure, there are 
some recollections of the catch and the four home run game in Milwaukee and the home run off Spawn in the 16th inning at Candlestick Park that gave Marichal a one nothing victory and dragging Johnny Roseboro off the field uh, in a sea of Dodger blue after Marichal clubbed him with the bat. So we go back and detail the obvious, but with new and different twists from all these people who've lived in a, a, a life and can look back at this like it was yesterday, have total recall, and are always happy to, to spin some Willie May stories. And So, that, yeah, I, I think... Um, the format, like you said, the bold-faced uh, Willie quotes, I think um, really sets this apart. I, I've never seen a book like it. So, you know, we took a lot of chances, and we tried to, I guess, write new history, because none of this stuff in this book has ever been used elsewhere. In other words, if Willie or anybody else said anything, those quotes were off-limits for this book. So it's all fresh and exclusive new material. We just had John Pessa on the show talking about Yogi Bear, and I think one of the similarities I saw between Mays and Bear is when they were younger, just the love of playing, love of playing sports. Now, certainly Bear was completely different in terms of what people viewed him and they viewed uh, as Willie, but I just the, the idea is that they were so focused on, on playing their sports and they enjoyed it and that passion came through. And, and you mentioned in the book how if, in maybe a different air, he would be a, a star basketball player or a quarterback or a, a football quarterback, that, that baseball was really his third best sport. Yeah, isn't that funny? Uh, back in Fairfield, Alabama, when he was in high school, you know, his high school didn't even have a baseball team. He was a quarterback <laughs> on the football team and the, the the shooting guard on the basketball team. But for whatever reason, they didn't have baseball. But the kids did play baseball regionally against other regions, other areas. So uh, he's pretty much the equivalent of a, maybe a YMCA or a boys club or something like that so that they could get their baseball fill. Now, Willie did that, but he also played at the same time during his high school years in the Negro Leagues with the Birmingham Black Barons. So he was always a step above the kids his age. I mean, he was playing center field with grown men in their 20s and early 30s, all these wonderful professional ballplayers, many of whom could have or should have played in the big leagues, but because of the color of their skin, they were unable to. But yeah, you're right. He always had that youthful exuberance and joy for the game uh, that made him just a must-see, not just at the plate, but in center field, because you never knew what was going to happen next. He told me in the book he tried to make the hard plays look easy and the easy plays look hard. And, of course, the basket catch that nobody ever saw before, and he mastered. He said he only dropped two in his whole life. And people tried to imitate it and got hit in the head, and he wouldn't recommend it. But, but he, yeah, he was he was a different breed, a different bird, and that's that's what made him so special. It was not just his baseball ability, which was through the roof with the five tools, but it was the sixth tool, the mental game, and it was the durability, playing every game, and the longevity and uh, the entertainment value. I mean, he had it all. There was nobody as complete as Willie Mays. And then in terms of his initial, when he was playing in Alabama and the Black Leagues, I mean, he played at the Rickford, Rickwood, Rickwood Stadium. And I was there. I went to Birmingham and I went to the stadium. And, and what a famous stadium. I mean, they filmed the movie Cobb there. Bull Durham was filmed there. And it's the oldest stadium in baseball. But I think 
the, the, which you, and you spell it on the book, in 1947, his father, who was a great baseball player in his own right, uh, said, Jackie Robinson just was signed by the Dodgers. This is your chance. So he came up, he was, you know, he was born at the right time in terms of, you know, he, there were all these great players that played in the black leagues in terms of Josh Gibson, who didn't really have a chance, or Satchel Page, who came in later. But it, right when Willie was coming into, you know, being playing 20 years old, he's going to have this chance to play in the major leagues. And that was a, you know, just a gr- so fortunate to have Hank Aaron and Willie Mays come in at that same time. Yeah, and there's a whole Hank and Willie chapter, and I think that could have been an entire book. I mean, I, I, I've never seen it written elsewhere, Willie on Hank and Hank on Willie all these years later, and both of them really opened up about each other and spoke about their mutual respect. I mean, they're only three years apart, Willie coming up in 51 and Hank coming up in 54, and they were on so many all-star teams together. They barnstormed together um, you know, they did autograph shows after their careers were over, and they all, they had the same the same path. You know, born in the same state, one one from Mobile, one from Birmingham, uh, and obviously they're the only living Hall of Famers who played in the Negro Leagues. But just two special people for a lot of reasons: American heroes and baseball heroes and sports heroes and so well-respected. And it was just an honor, my goodness, to talk to Hank all these years later about his career and his association with Willie. And I asked him a lot about the so-called rivalry and Willie as well. And, uh, you know, obviously, yeah, it could have been a rivalry. Uh, They might have looked in the box scores to see what the other guy is doing. They were both chasing Babe Ruth, the home run record, But I think more important than that was just the fact that these were two special people who overcame so much in their youth to strive for a better game, a better world, and, you know, the proof in the pudding. I mean, they, looking back at their careers and lives, I mean, exemplary lives, and through their foundation, they're still helping kids, underprivileged kids, and both of them were exactly that. And it, it, it just never stops. But yeah, Rickwood Field back in, back in Birmingham, 1910. It's just a beautiful. Yeah, you saw it. I saw. It. We'd recommend it to, to anybody. I'm sure you feel the same way. Oldest uh, professional ballpark in the country. And you walk in, and you're just walking into history. It's a beautiful little park. I mean, all the greats played there, white and black, because white folks and black folks barnstormed in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s and everyone seemed to stop uh, through Birmingham and uh, Willie of course born in the area and played there in 48, 49, 50 1948 he was a center fielder on the team that went all the way to the Negro League World Series and that was the final Negro League World Series uh, because interest in the leagues were waning Jackie was in Brooklyn and the focus was on these you know, great ball players who were making their mark in, in, in what was known as white baseball. Right. I mean, and you have an interesting chapter about what ifs. 
and you said that, you know, why did Willie Mays end up with the Giants? And the, the fact is that it's more likely he would have gone to the Red Sox. And you could have had Willie Mays and Ted Williams in the same team. Um, but the Red Sox were not signing African-American players at that time. And you, and you mentioned how the American League was hesitant to do that, whereas more of the National League. And then because you, you said, well, the Yankees could have signed him also, but they didn't. Yankees didn't sign an African-American until Elston Howard. And then you're like the question, well, the Dodgers, they already had Jackie Robinson, right? Campanella. They didn't go after him. So it was very interesting that he ended up with the Giants. And remember, the, this is the New York Giants, not the San Francisco Giants at that time. But uh, but that was, I mean, gosh, you look at the what ifs. I mean, what if he did go end up going the Red Sox and, and playing with Ted Williams? Yeah, Willie and Ted on the same team. And more than any other team that scouted him, and we went down the list. There were two Boston teams, the Braves and the Red Sox. The Braves eventually moving to Milwaukee and then Atlanta. Uh, the Dodgers from Brooklyn, the Yankees, and even the White Sox were involved. And more than any other team, Mays tells me that it was the Red Sox who were in on him the most. And why not? Because the Red Sox actually had a minor league team, a white minor league team, playing at Rickwood on weekends that the Black Barons were out of town. And when the Black Barons came in to play, uh, the White Barons uh, went out of town to play their road games. So um, the Red Sox knew everything about Mays, but obviously uh, the ownership and the management were, were, were not fond of any men of color playing for those cherished Red Sox. And what did that lead to? Well, it led to a lot of mediocrity on the ball field for many, many years to come. The, the, just uh, awful. And not until Pumpsy Green in 1959 that the Red Sox actually bring in an African-American ball player, and that was 12 years after Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier. So they were way behind, and most American League teams, including the Yankees, were way behind. But imagine Mays and Mantle on the same team, or, or Mays and Aaron on the same team, or, or I said the White Sox, maybe Mays and Ernie Banks in the same town. So all those, all those dreams shattered uh, because management and ownership's uh, just were not ready uh, to integrate, or in those years they actually had either two or four. They had quotas per team, so they could room together. And when Willie Mays got called up, well, there were already four with the New York Giants in '51. So Artie Wilson came off the roster, and that was Willie's old teammate with the Black Barons. So they sent him down to bring Willie up, so they could have four African American players. And imagine that—it's just crazy to think back all these years later. Right, and and even though Jackie had years ago, the I guess four years before that, it broke the color barrier, but, um, you know, Willie, when he was uh, playing at Trenton, experienced... Anyway, you know, they had to stay at segregated hotels. And you talked about how the team embraced him. Like if he was had to stay at another hotel, the team would all just crowd into his room at whatever hotel he was in and how popular he was. And even when the fans were, were booing him and by at Hagerstown, you mentioned about Hagerstown, how they end up loving him. And they went to Minneapolis. And it was like you saw it even in the minor leagues that one year. And, and you mentioned how he, he felt like the, the minor leagues were easier than when he was playing in the black leagues in terms of playing. He said that competition was as much less. But it was like he he. I'm, you know, even though Jackie was the one who was the first, Willie still had to, he had a lot of discrimination against him, but he was able to, again, both just like Jackie, in order to battle through it. He told me, I didn't know if it was worth it. And what he meant was in 1950, when he graduated from high school, he went from the Black Barons to an all-white league 
and a minor league affiliate of the Giants in Trenton. And he got abused so much. And like you said, three years after Jackie broke in, hearing a lot of the same stuff, that he told me he wondered if it was worth it. And imagine that if there was no Willie Mays, if he found then at that young age that it wasn't worth it and he turned away and went back to Birmingham, worked in the mills like his dad did or or had odd jobs or went back to the Black Barons, which, you know, a team that didn't last forever. Um, luckily, it was worth it. And, you know, he, he proved all the bigots wrong. He beat the bigots. He moved on and made a life for himself and, you know, turned everything into a better place. Every ballpark he played in, every town he lived in. And I just, it, it, it just gave me chills when he said that because it, it was, it was so bad in Trenton, not in Trenton, but, but on the road when the Trenton giants uh, made trips, especially down there in Hagerstown. And, um, it, it, it was rough on him, but, uh, even with the New York giants a year later, when he broke in, there were towns that he could not stay with his white teammates. He could not eat with his white teammates. And, uh, so th- this was the beginning of uh, of integration. This was only four years after Jackie broke in that Willie broke in with the Giants. And it- it's just amazing sitting with the man for so much time. And it was more than 100 hours, we figured, together for this project. And it- I just felt so lucky and so fortunate, so privileged to hear the man, talk to the man, and chronicle what the man has to say uh, about his life, about his career, about America, and uh, it's just an opportunity that that uh, you know I pinch myself about because it's it, it's uh, it's amazing that I was able to do this, and also amazing I was able to share these stories of Willie and the 200 plus people I interviewed um, who complimented Willie's stories, supplemented Willie's stories, and within these 24 chapters, all of that is presented in hopefully a, a way that readers would enjoy it. We're talking to John Shea, author of With Willie Mays of 24. Um, I did like when you talked about in 1951, his rookie year. I mean, he seemed like the Forrest Gump almost. And the fact that he not only did he win rookie of the year, so he's a great player, but he was on deck when Bobby Thompson hit the famous home run, uh, one of the most famous home runs in the history of, of, of baseball. And he was like nervous. He was glad that Thompson hit it because he didn't want to be up, as you said in the book. And then in the World Series, he's the one who hit the ball. And I don't didn't remember that, but he's the one who hit the ball where Mantle uh, blew out his knee when he tried to crash into DiMaggio and it was Mays who hit that ball. So it was like, even though that was, I guess that was, a, you know, it was, even in his rookie year, he was part of some historic moments. Yeah, and who, who would have thunk it? I mean, uh, Hank, uh, I mean, uh, Mickey and Willie came came up together in 51, um, and they kind of paralleled each other throughout. Uh, both five-tool geniuses, right, um, who played center field, who played in New York, who who were the three hitters on their on their teams across the river from each other. And, uh, yeah, that 51 series, Mickey is a rookie, Willie is a rookie, and the great DiMaggio is out in center field in his last hurrah, his final uh, World Series, the final season of his Jarrett's career. And, and uh, Mantle is out in right because, um, you know, the following year he would take over for, for Joe D. But... But not until uh, Joe D. leaves does he take over center field. So Mays hits the seemingly routine pop-up out to right center. <laughs> and Casey Stengel, uh, as Willie explains in the book, tells tells Mantle to go for everything because Joe D. 
had a little leg problem that slowed him. So when you tell Mantle to go for everything, then he's going all out on this fly ball in the right center. But Joe calls him off. And obviously you have to de- de- defer to, to DiMaggio. And uh, so so Mickey went from 100 miles an hour to zero miles an hour. He, he slips on this drain cover, blows out the knees. Never the same, but he has a great career. Imagine, like you said, what if? Uh, he was healthy because Mays, to this day, says Mantle, even after the injury, was one of the two fastest players he's ever seen, him and Beta Pinson. So anyway, yeah, the, the ball Mays hit is the one that DiMaggio called and the one that Mickey got hurt on. And imagine that, the three great center fielders uh, connect on this one single play in the 51 World Series, and, and Mays is the guy who hit the ball. Well, John, thanks a lot for coming on IRS Sports. I really appreciate it. This book is tremendous. Um, any baseball fan should be reading about him. He is a true inspiration to people, and uh, you really you know, cover his entire career. And just I like the stories and how you presented the book. Everything was perfect. Uh, thanks a lot. For, thank you so much for writing the book. It, was, it gave me a lot of pleasure reading it, and I really enjoyed learning things. So, again, thanks, John, for, for writing the book and for coming on I Run Sports. Well, Ira, uh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Take care. That was John Shea here on Ira on Sports. So, Ira, we are just about out of time. What do we have going on this week? Well, we have two NASCAR races Saturday and Sunday at Poconos. Uh, the Travelers Championship yep. in Connecticut, which is going to be great because of a tremendous field. I mean, these are almost like uh, major fields in terms of who's playing in it. And then we're going to find out from the NHL what cities they're going to play in and the NBA, what players are going to be in it, maybe a schedule set up. And then with Major League Baseball, whether they're going to play or not. I have a real feeling, and we spoke to Randy Moeller about this. He wasn't going to um, guess, but I have a feeling it's going to be Toronto and Vegas. I feel like they have the best amenities for as far as hockey goes, and so many of the guys are Canadian anyways. Why wouldn't they want to be in their home country, a little easier to travel? So that's what I'm leaning towards for NHL. Well, I think if, if baseball does not play, it's going to be a big benefit for the NHL because they'll be playing along with the NBA. And what if the NBA doesn't play? The NHL might be the only ones that will be playing. So, And that's exactly what that league <laughs> needs. They could definitely use it. We are about out of time. Thanks so much to John Shea and Michael Bamberger. He's Ira. I'm Mike. Let's talk next Monday night. Ira on Sports.